This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. It's 10 minutes past 9am and my first guest for the morning has joined me on the program uh, all the way from WA. Francis Italiano is uh, kind of co-artistic director of a company called Sensorium Theatre based over in the west of the country and they make accessible, unique work for children with special needs, not just children with special needs, accessible and uh, for all young people, but very much with a focus, Francis, on ensuring that young people who do have special needs, perhaps they're on the autism spectrum or so forth, can have a theatrical experience that is just as rich and rewarding as work made for any other young person. Yeah, that's right, Richard. Hello, good morning. Um, Yeah, uh, we make work that uh, is designed with that audience in mind. So the the audiences we have, um, well, it is really, I guess, universal. It's for all kids, but we particularly focus on kids all the way from, well, across the spectrum. So you might have kids uh, on the autism spectrum at one, one end of things, all the way through to kids with maybe profound multiple disabilities that uh, might have trouble uh, moving, communicating, um, and then everything in between, which might, uh, which is just about all of us, really. <laughs> How long has the company been uh, been around and making this sort of work? Well, we've been doing it for about ten years now. Um, originally, we were just a group of uh, interested artists exploring this. We were particularly interested in exploring the multi-sensory immersive aspect of it um, and realised that that was really uh, powerful and worked for, for this audience. And so we started building up the company there and we've done a number of shows and uh, now here with our latest show, Woosh. Now, I've uh, had a bit of a look at one of the things that people uh, can jump online, sensoriumtheatre.com.au. There's a beautiful video which gives a sense of what Woosh is like for audiences. Uh, I, I guess the, the elevator pitch is it's an opportunity for kids to board a spaceship, learn how to fly the spaceship, eat some space food out of tubes, just like real astronauts, and when it lands, they're in a completely different and alien world. Yeah, we've been lucky with this one. We've um, had the, the capacity, I guess the budget, to, to make a couple of immersive environments. So we've got this big, amazing spaceship, which is fantastic. Um, we got some funding from our version of... Do you guys still have Tatslotto here, Lotto? We have Lottery West there and they funded us to make this giant geodesic dome and we worked with a creative coder uh, to make a lot of interactive stations on the spaceship that um, are kind of based on on the kind of assistive technology that a lot of these kids use in their daily lives. So a lot of push-button stuff and I guess if you think sort of Stephen Hawking kind of affair, so lots of sensor-activated stuff and, and just simple cause and effect. So... Uh, in this one, we enlist them as cadets. So we come out to the foyer and we've landed and we enlist them as cadets and we're going to go on this space mission and you can't have a space mission without a, an emergency crash landing. And so that gives us an opportunity to go and explore a whole second environment, which is much more um, free form. It's a bit probably... Well, those of us around our age, Richard, probably might remind us of a couple of raves we went to back <laughs> in the 90s or something. But um, it's all very UV and organic and like a big lava, lava lamp come to life. Now, that notion of the spaceship having a crash landing is an interesting thing to kind of put into a story for young people with special needs, given that disruption, disorder, um, uh, the unexpected can be really quite confronting and frightening mm. for, for some young people like this. How do you kind of ensure that that 
part of the journey is an adventure rather than terrifying. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's really important that um, I guess we prepare our audiences. So we have a lot of preparatory resources that we send out beforehand. Um, traditionally in this world, uh, anyone out there uh, with, with, with children with additional needs would know Preparing kids for things uh, can make a big difference. So we have a digital app that we've made uh, for this show and when people buy tickets or schools book, the digital app gets sent out to them and that has um, what's called in the business social story. So social story is, is a, th- uh, a series of sort of images and explanations saying, you know, we will go on a ship and we will do this and there will be an emergency. It's kind of uh, counterintuitive to how we do mainstream uh, kids theatre for, for neurotypical kids in that normally you want to kind of surprise them and keep things keep things uh, hidden here you'll often signpost things um it's all done in a very low-key way but they can listen to the to the um siren which is not too loud and look at the pictures of the the um the red lights that come on and we all do you know bracing and we all practice together one two three and we brace um for the emergency landing um in fact we don't even call it a crash it's just an emergency landing like oh something's wrong we better land um and it's amazing how uh, kids that I guess people are often trying to mitigate risk and freaking them out, um, it's amazing how on board they get, excuse the pun. Um, so I, I guess we play a lot with the idea of scary safe in that world because I think it's great. We have relaxed performances now. People are really thinking about ways, you know, um, we were talking on radio the other day about uh, sensory hour at, at, at um, shopping centres and that idea of keeping things quiet and particularly for kids on the spectrum, those sort of things can be, um, uh, if, if an environment is overstimulating, um, it can be distressing. But our job is kind of to say, well, let's see how we can facilitate what might be an exciting experience. Because I believe all kids want to get excited. And that's why you and I go to the theatre. We want to be stimulated. We want to be inspired. We want to have um, our curiosity peaked. So it's kind of like if you use different motivators and then you stay with them to kind of navigate that safely together they're on board, they're in the game. It's like when you're playing a game as a kid and you um, overturn the coffee table and it's a shipwreck and suddenly someone says, well, there's sharks coming. Okay, there are sharks coming. When you're in the game, you're just with it. And so these kids are often surprising the circle of care around them with their responses. And people who, you know, there's this awful term, I don't like it. Um, Oh, you know, Johnny is tactile defensive, which means he doesn't like to touch things. And it's like, yeah, but let's look at it within a context. So a kid that might not touch things uh, normally, ordinarily, is in our show caught up in the game, which is what we know theatre is all about, uh, caught up in the game and is then reaching out to pat one of our puppets or whatever it might be in that in that particular show. Or, uh, for example, in this particular show in Whoosh, once the spaceship has had its emergency landing, there might be a no slimy things to play with or, yes. or strange glowing spheres. Or, Indeed, yeah. 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 There's a lot of things to interact with and, as always, um, the agency is with the child. So... Um, that's part of the social story is you can say yes, please, or no thank you to anything. No one's going to have anything forced on them, um, which I think actually even for mainstream audiences, you know, it's in the zeitgeist, immersive theatre. I don't really believe in bombarding people. I, I think actually if you invite their curiosity and have something that they want to explore, then they're going to come and meet you. And that's what we're all about is meeting 
each kid. We also get um, uh, profiles of our audience before they come. So if uh, Richard Watts' mum is booking a ticket, then there'll be a, a questionnaire as part of that, which just guides us around uh, your additional needs. You might have cortical vision impairment. You might have a cochlear implant. Uh, you may not have any vision. You may have difficulty moving. Sometimes medical things that need to be taken into account, like brittle bone syndrome or, or, or something like that. And when we know that about you, and sometimes it might just be about the things you do like, the things you respond to, music or, or um, love songs, whatever it might be, those things are helpful to our performers. So then we tailor our performance to each child as we're doing it, because they're small audiences. There's only about um, 15 kids at a time. And then in, thus ensuring that each kid can have the, the kind of transformative experience that theatre can offer but in a kind of safe and supported way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in fact, in this show, more so than our others, we're actually encouraging those adults who think uh, their child might be OK to stay outside of the ship. You can watch from ground control. There's all this CCTV TV and, and we've got all this tech to play with so they can watch what's going on or look through the portholes. Um, and the kids, of course, can come and go if they need to and there's no requirement. You're not sitting down. I mean, that's the whole thing about immersive. You know, you're not sitting down in a darkened auditorium having to focus on something in the distance. It's all right there and you can navigate it. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Francis Italiano, who's the co-artistic director and one of the performers in Whoosh by Sensorium Theatre, which uh, is uh, being presented here in Melbourne uh, at Art Centre Melbourne with the support of Performing Lines WA, uh, who help tour independent works around the country. Uh, so there are two performances on Saturday the 29th of June, so this Saturday at 10am and 12pm. And I, Francis, I understand each performance has got a slight is angled towards a, a slightly different audience yeah what um art center melbourne have been they're really kind of committed to to creating accessible experiences so they've been really looking at tailoring also beyond our tailoring within the show they're tailoring to their audiences and catering for them so they've actually uh um put uh audiences on the spectrum together in one in one show and then the other one might be more for kids with uh, profound and multiple disabilities or, or, or who have quite high support needs um, and that allows us to sort of shift gears within the shows it's um each show is remarkably different from the one before in terms of creating work like this obviously the the artistry is one aspect of it the artistry and the imagination and that's unique to all theater making and unique to all art making but for you and your colleagues from Sensorium Theatre, have you done additional special training around access issues, around the the kind of having the, I guess, the information that you need to know uh, about the audiences you're working with? So have you gone beyond traditional theatre studies? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's been a lot of partnerships along the way. We have a partner, partner school that we're based at in WA so um, we have the Imaginarium which is on site at a school called Kenwick School which is a dedicated special needs school so we learn a lot we've learned a lot from therapists and educators about different techniques and ways to engage kids and our, um, our creative developments always involve our target audience you can't really make 
interactive, immersive stuff without actually bringing your audience in. And anyone who's worked in any kids' theatre knows that they're, they're, they're harsher critics than any of you guys. <laughs> so they'll let us know if it's not working. And, and, you know, it is all that kill your darling stuff. We, we, we make things and think this is brilliant and then they come along and it doesn't fly and so we adapt. And um, we were lucky really early on in the piece. There was a wonderful initiative that unfortunately isn't around anymore that was a um, an OSCO kind of partnership between... Um, the education department and uh, the Department of Culture and the Arts. And so that allowed us to have, I think at the time it was 12 weeks full-time in within a school and we kind of created this sort of two-way dramaturgy where it was kind of a, uh, an exchange between, you know, the, the, the teachers had a lot to learn from us in terms of us being artists and taking risks and we had a lot to learn from them in terms of techniques and that's really informed what we do. One of the things that really intrigues me about Sensorium Theatre's Whoosh, having read a little bit about it, I think there was even a... Uh, you guys did a pitch at uh, the Performing Arts Exchange in Caratha last yes, year that I was right. at, so I got to hear a little bit more about the work and see the video there and then watch the video again last night, uh, sensoriumtheatre.com.au, and you can find out the details about Whoosh there. But watching that video again last night, hey, I may have teared up a little bit <laughs> because just from the sheer joy in some of the kids' faces, which is a beautiful thing to see. Uh, and But also because, again, that notion of creating an immersive environment, it's uh, any form of imaginative play. You only need a sock and it's suddenly it's on exactly. your hand and it's, a, it's your best friend that's talking to you. Or, as you said earlier, Francis, the, the upside-down coffee table becomes the pirate ship. But in this instance, the fact that there are additional props and elements to enrich that environment. Uh, and I just wanted to talk about the food, for example, the fact mm -hmm. that kind of... I can remember as a as a seven year old being fascinated by the idea of NASA astronauts eating kind of something flavoured like steak out of a tube, for example, and the way it was made. Why did you decide to bring those kind of taste and touch and tactile elements into the work? Well, we use the um, uh, all the sensory elements as access points to the story. So um, we kind of commit to all of them. We, we do a sensory audit when we're, when we're working on any scene and we're like, well, what is the tactile experience here? What is the child's experience is the main one, um, whatever it might be. But we're thinking about the olfactory um, properties of what we do. We do have a smell design to what we're doing. We're thinking about uh, can we... Taste is a tricky one to get in there and some of our kids are, might be nil by mouth or they might be... Yeah, they'll, they'll be peg-fed during a show or something. So we have to think of alternatives. And and there's a whole range of alternatives for each kid. But you can't, I mean, there's a lyric about, you know, space food. It it comes to us in tiny tubes and squeezes out like it's being pooed. And uh, even though it seems pre-chewed, it always puts us in the mood. And everyone loves it. I mean, who doesn't love condensed milk in a tube, you know? So um, that's part of the fun. And it's kind of naughty. We're eating this sugary thing. Francis Italiano, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Richard. Independent Melbourne Radio, 3 triple R. R, R. We're going to talk visual art again. Uh, it's a bit of a theme this morning. Sometimes there's a big theatre focus because that's just what's on. At the moment, there's all kinds of interesting visual artwork happening. Uh, I'm joined in the studio by Max Delaney from ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, and visiting artist Amber Wellman. Welcome to you both. Thank Hi, Richard. You. Uh, Max, you're here to talk to us about On Vulnerability and Doubt, which is ACCA's new winter exhibition. It's an interesting theme and idea for an exhibition because at the moment doubt is perhaps something we could almost 
have more of in the world because everybody's so desperate to believe fake news. So maybe a little bit more doubt and cynicism could be good in that regard. But because of that, we also do feel incredibly vulnerable. So this feels like a really timely kind of theme to explore. Yeah, I mean, it actually has been a really great response just to the idea of the exhibition and the title alone because I think... You know, questions of vulnerability and precariousness um, are very much at the forefront of people's minds, but also questions of doubt. And it seems like, you know, we are less sort of welcoming of doubt these days. And um, you know, doubt's very important. And I think um, certainly um, uh, the exhibition explores these ideas. It looks at questions of yeah, vulnerability and doubt and intimacy and desire and shame and awkwardness. So lots of really interesting things to, to get our teeth into. And why did you, uh, as part of this exhibition, uh, want to present Amber's work? Yeah, um, I mean, Amber is an artist whose work I saw overseas about 18 months ago, and she's really um, an extraordinary painter um, whose work also engages with questions of intimacy and desire, and which are really kind of key ideas within the um, exhibition. The idea of um, giving oneself over to, the, to another... Um, is very much part of her practice. Um, I mean, Amber can describe her paintings, but her paintings, gen at the moment, the recent body of work, have been exploring kind of these very, you know, interesting entanglements of bodies and desire and erotic subjects, um, which are, I guess, animated through painterly means. But And also the show seeks to look not only at ideas of the visual but other other sensations other other emotions and effects and so um, Amber's work is very much um, you know key to those ideas now you're Nova Scotian originally I am. yeah that's right so, uh, it's one of those in, whenever I have visiting artists I'm never sure do I say uh, Canadian Nova Scotian because <laughs> Australians, can, I think I would probably prefer to be identified as a Melbourneian before mm -hmm. an Australian, for example. But tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice. Um, well, I'm, I am originally from Nova Scotia and uh, I completed my graduate studies in Ontario and I'm Berlin-based now. So two and a half years ago, I left um, Toronto and moved to Berlin. And um, I've always been interested in art history and historical figuration which isn't such a present art form in Canada, um, especially not in Toronto. So moving to Europe was a way to situate myself in closer proximity to the artwork that has informed my practice for some time, namely neoclassical work and Renaissance and Baroque art. Um, and I've just always been interested in figuration and our contemporary relationship to historical objects. Um, so my practice explores, um, like Max said, uh, desire and intimacy, sexuality, eroticism and violence, um, primarily from a female perspective. Which One of the things, looking at some of your work online last night and again this morning, one of the things that uh, I saw was a kind of a reflection of uh, Francis Bacon, for example, but whereas Bacon's work is kind of violent and masculine and, and quite brutal in some ways, mm -hmm. but also fleshy and vulnerable, mm -hmm. kind of, uh, yes, your work kind of seemed to be referencing or acknowledging that, mm -hmm. but kind of definitely um, uh, with a very different gaze. Yes, I think that my work contains a certain degree of tenderness, perhaps, um, and also, you know, a psychological and emotional intensity, very much akin to Bacon, also a sense of fragmentation and fleshiness, but there is um, a tenderness and a vulnerability that I think comes from a distinctly feminist perspective in my work, 
So. And some of your work, uh, I, people have told me they find disturbing. Um, <laughs> but uh, I don't see that. But Max? No, I mean, I, I think that the bacon reference is really interesting because, I mean, Amber does create these kinds of little mise-en-scene where these figures are presented um, in a kind of stage diorama and they're kind of engaging with each other, perhaps you know, um, irrespective of the viewer, but there is always this incredible dialogue with the viewer um, and an intimacy with the viewer as well. I think that's something that she's very interested in doing is kind of creating this connection between the drama that's represented within the painting and the drama of paint itself, which impacts upon the viewer. Um, I don't find them disturbing. I think they, they do bring you into a kind of an immediacy with what is often considered private and intimate um, encounters and behaviour, and I think that's actually very interesting it's also kind of brave and courageous and I think um, you know to to give oneself over to someone else in a sexual context for example does involve an awkwardness and it does involve you know um, a, a, a bring down of one's guard and giving oneself over and so those are some of the ideas that are explored in different ways through the exhibition as well yeah and Amber you've uh, done what uh, many artists do and adapted to technology as it evolves mm -hmm. and uh, we've seen artists in the past going oh, suddenly video cameras are easily accessible and available I will see what art I can make with video you're putting your art out on Instagram which is making it very very broadly accessible mm -hmm. uh, why what is it about Instagram and its immediacy and its ability to allow you to communicate and share ideas with a broad audience. Why does that fascinate you? Uh, it used to fascinate me. I, I cancelled my account, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> I deleted it. Um, it sort of got out of control and I accumulated so many followers that I felt like... It was eating you? It was... I mean, I think that... Uh, Instagram needs me more than I need it in some cases and you know you can quickly become used by technology and no longer a user and I felt like um, my relationship with it be was basically becoming an addictive one and you start to share work um, for approval and it's a system that is inherently competitive I think that Instagram encourages competition which an art practice should not necessarily be about so I wanted to distance myself from the platform I can totally understand that and that yeah. taps back into the theme of the exhibition vulnerability mm -hmm. kind of by sharing your work you were making yourself vulnerable yes so uh, Max talk to us about tease out some of those ideas for us I mean, that's really a very important um, subject of the exhibition as well the vulnerability of the artists themselves um, feel when they present their work for display, for judgment to the public. And that's certainly, for example, the subject of a really important series by um, Andrea Butner, um, the German artist, um, recently one of the Turner Prize finalists. Um, she has a series called Beggars, um, and it's a series of really amazing woodblock prints, um, large-scale sheets of paper, in which these um, nine figures, nine prints, um, present these prone figures, shrouded figures, um, appealing to the viewer, so beggars, um, which she she looks at um, with, a, with a great sense of sensitivity and wanting to endow these figures with, with dignity and with authority and with grace and gravitas. But she also sees the beggars as, um, on the one hand, you know, representative of the way that we're increasingly demonising the poor and the other and the vulnerable, but also she sees these images as um, images of artists before their viewers or before their patrons, you know, uh, with arms outstretched. 
um, and appealing to the viewer. So there's there's interesting kind of relationships both to the way that artists uh, present their work to the public, but also wider sort of social and cultural contexts. Well, one of the the things that intrigues me is exploring uh, not just vulnerability, but exploring fear. Uh, because uh, whether it's uh, fear of putting yourself out there, whether it's fear for an artist of creating a new work, uh, that itself must be a, a something that uh, would, is a great challenge. I know for me as a writer, the minute I sit down with a blank page and I have to begin, there's always that moment of, what if the words don't come this time? Is there a similar fear when, when creating art? I think anxiety is a better word than fear, actually. Um, I think there's uh, a certain degree of anticipation and, um, you know, fear and excitement sort of are two sides of the same coin. So it's it's a mixture of, I think, anxiety and anticipation and excitement, but not fear. Yeah, I mean, fear is actually the subject of um, Shireen Fahd's work in the exhibition, and um, she has a, um, a series called the Fear of series, and it's a series that she first made in 2011, and it's continued to evolve in different ways. But in the first instance, um, she actually collected and wrote down her private fears, which she posted onto these large sort of bill poster format um, sheets of paper, and then she put she sort of pasted them up in public space. So she was sort of projecting her private fears into the public realm and then leaving them in the world for other people to encounter and identify with. And in many cases they are personal, but in many cases they are universal fears. And I, mean, I think, you know, artists are also very courageous because they, they, they're searching for beauty, but they have to also embrace failure. And so there's always that kind of drama of, of um, you know, of, of the desire for something, but... Um, equally uh, the the reality that um, some other kinds of situation might arise. Failure is something that does kind of fascinate me creatively because um, as I've said uh, in the past when talking about theatre works, I'd much rather see uh, uh, an ambitious failure than a bland success. But the flip side of that, Amber, how do you know when a work is successful for you yourself, not for the public response or the critical response or the right. curatorial kind of response? For you as an artist, how do you know when something you have painted or made is successful for you in your own terms? I think it's successful for me when uh, it feels as if it leads to the potential for another painting. So it's it's a segue into something else. And it's also successful, I think, if it produces something that I don't have language for yet as well. Um, so those are some of you know the measurements that I use in the studio, but there's also infinite amount of failure. <laughs> <laughs> But is it is it would you is it really failure or is it just a step along the way? It can be failure for sure, but that doesn't mean it's not productive. And I think failure itself can be a productive thing in, in its own right. And certainly, an artist such as um, Linda Maranon, for example, is very interested in the whole idea of deflating of pomp and ceremony and being against grandiosity and, and making a work which might appear off-handed or haphazard or casual, um, but. It's done so with quite specific intent and purpose. You know, it's against kind of the grand statement. It's against monument monumentality. It's against patriarchy or these kind of authoritative statements. And this comes back to the question of doubt that you introduced at the start. You know, we're, we're so sort of um, beholden now to, you know, statements of authority and certainty. And, you know, I think a lot of artists are actually much more interested in nuance and complexity. Yeah. Well, as we've been talking, I've been thinking about the 
the the idea of, of vulnerability and making oneself vulnerable uh, given that we have world leaders like Trump and then other leaders like him uh, in Brazil and the Philippines and elsewhere who are holding them up to be absolute authorities, for example, that notion of uh, an artistic response saying, well, no, let's not be authoritative, let us make ourselves more vulnerable is perhaps a, a logical response to what we're seeing in the world. Yeah, I think I think vulnerability um, now also. I mean, it has we have seen sort of widespread international representations of vulnerable positions um, coming uh, to the fore and to the centre, and no longer is vulnerability um, always aligned with victimhood, but actually more so with agency and an ability to present other positions and and other ways of being and and other perspectives. So the vulnerable is also sometimes related related to the minority or the minor. And that the minor could be also the, the form of the minor, sort of a formal sense as well as a kind of representative sense. For, for you, Amber, talk to us about kind of being vulnerable through through your art. How important is it to to open up in that way? I mean, I agree with Max in the sense that vulnerability is uh, not about weakness but about complexity. It's not about determinism. It's about like an openness or a porousness um, because I do think that the political climate at the moment is completely insane. And, uh, you know, there's a certain degree of... Um, uh, certainty that's used to, to launch arguments and um, against women, basically. So I think that vulnerability keeps things open and porous in a way that um, provides agency uh, to an artist. And in my practice, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, the forms are, are sort of a reflection of that. They're very open, very undetermined, very loose, um, and things are discovered through processes of erasure and rather than full disclosure. So. One of the things that intrigues me also then about uh, visual art in the current political climate and social climate, again, when so much is absolute, being able to uh, view art and... Uh, that art to be uncertain. It's not a strict narrative. It's not telling you what it is. It's inviting you to interpret and engage on your own terms rather than the terms that are being set out and demanded for you. In terms of uh, artists, uh, sorry, in terms of audiences uh, who are going to be visiting on vulnerability and doubt at Akamax, what is your advice for them about approaching the exhibition in terms of how they should open themselves to to consider, to absorb, to interpret, to respond? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think um, certainly the exhibition is interested in questions of sensation and feeling. And that's something that not only is related to the artist, but also to the viewer and the, the, the ability that an artwork might have to move us or to change our perspective or to give us a different way of looking at things. And so... Um, Equally, the question of empathy comes into the picture and I think a number of artists in the exhibition, their works actually appeal to the viewer to, to encourage ideas of empathy and, and ethics. Um, there's an ethical framework around some works. There's a really amazing work by um, Archie Moore, um, Indigenous artist based in Brisbane, um, and it's called Under My Skin. And it's um, basically um, a T-shirt of the of Archie's um, naked uh, torso or chest. Um, that T-shirt is worn by other people alongside Archie, who himself is without the T-shirt. And it's really about getting into someone else's skin, putting yourself into someone else's shoes, um, understanding someone else's perspective. I mean, on the one hand, it's a really beautiful image because it kind of shows an awkwardness of the artist 
you know, without clothes, you know, um, bare-chested, um, on display. But it's also, um, as an Indigenous artist, a First Nations artist, it's also related to kind of more pernicious um, questions about skin colour and about identification and legitimacy um, and uh, questions of um, Aboriginality and how those have historically been determined according to European and colonial constructs around questions of skin and blood relations. Uh, and so in many respects there's a sort of um, a, a darker undercurrent to that work as well. But very much um, his work is, is also very much about empathy and uh, stepping inside someone else's shoes. Max Delaney and Amber Wellman, thank you both so much for joining us here at Triple R. We could talk for much, much longer, but my next guest is already waiting. Thanks so much for coming in. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Richard. Thanks. Ah, ah, ah. I am joined by David Gregg, who has adapted Solaris, uh, the science fiction uh, novel for the stage. It's being presented by the Malthouse Theatre. David, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Yes, it's lovely to be here. It's very nice to be in Melbourne. So, for people who aren't familiar with Solaris, it's been um, uh, an epic Russian film, for example, kind of meditative and thoughtful. More recently, it's been uh, kind of a, a more commercial film, kind of... But why why this science fiction novel on the stage? Yes, well, well, Solaris is a um, I suppose it's a classic. It's a it's a 1960s science fiction classic from Poland, which is sort of unusual, isn't it? Because it's you don't ex, you don't sort of use you know we sort of associate science fiction with America, I think, or or sort of. Um, but the idea of kind of p- p- communist behind the Iron Curtain science fiction has a certain kind of. Um, uh, a glamour to it, and and the novel uh, was written by a, a terrific Polish writer called Stanislaw Lem in 1962, when spaceflight was really just beginning. Yuri Gagarin had, I think, only a few years previously been up in um, the first orbit of Earth and everything, and uh, and and Lem wrote this really beautiful, actually rather funny book as well about. Um, a group of astronauts or scientists who are on a space station and it's orbiting a planet covered in ocean and they sort of slowly begin to realise the planet might be conscious. It might it might sort of have thoughts. And the way that it manifests those thoughts is by by sending them visitors. And these visitors are kind of reflections of their own memory somehow, these start inhabiting the craft you know it's like as if your own memories came alive in front of you i suppose so it's a really fascinating sort of quite philosophical quite mysterious quite quite uh, um a, you know sort of uh, interesting premise for the book some years later tarkovsky the the russian art house auteur turned this into one of his absolute sort of classic movies um and it's a brilliant movie. It's a beautiful movie, but it gives you a slightly false impression of the role. It's really a Tarkovsky film because it's nothing. Nothing happens for a really, really long time, <laughs> which is great. I mean, I love that. Don't get me wrong, but it's it's more difficult to adapt for the stage. Um, and then later, Steven Soderbergh turned it into a slightly more Hollywood, still a little bit indie, but a slightly more Hollywood version with George Clooney. So that's the kind of that's where it all comes from the book. But we 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 did it. F- Matthew Lutton, who, who's the director and who artistic director of the Mort House, he had, he was in Scotland because I'd invited him to do Picnic at Hanging Rock with our theatre, 
and we were talking about things we could do and he said Solaris and I thought it just seemed funny because it's the idea of doing science fiction on stage just seemed really strange and and then I thought well why don't we try it out I mean because it yeah it just it just sort of made me it tickled me the thought of doing this film that's famous for nothing happening and doing science fiction and then of course it turned out to be um you know a very very uh, absorbing and engrossing piece of work but at first it was just i just thought it sounded difficult and that would be interesting yeah one of the things that intrigues me about the project is that uh Interestingly, now the phrase speculative fiction gets used uh, as much, if not more, than science fiction. Uh, And for me, one of the things that's fascinating about great science fiction uh, is not the space operas and the and the, the lasers and the, the spaceships and so forth but the philosophical yeah. ideas and the expression of, of what if that yeah. a great science fiction story can tell and one of the what ifs in this is what well, one of them as you've already touched on is what if an entire planet is alive yeah. and trying to communicate with you yeah. and the other is what if somebody you love who has died and you've had time to grieve and become yeah. accustomed to their loss is now back in your life. Yeah. And that's yeah. a f- that the is such a dramatic genre. question. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was a bit amazed when I read the novel, I was amazed it hadn't been turned into a play before because in some ways it's actually really like Chekhov or Ibsen, Ibsen more than Chekhov, that it's, it's a single location and in that location a small cast of characters who have different you know very different attitudes to to this situation play out their you know their their dilemmas and then they are visited as they do so by ghosts and it's that's that's really you know quite i mean it's almost greek in its kind of um thinking and but the the other sort of the speculative aspect the what if you know we we're sort of obsessed with the idea as humans of are are we alone i i I saw something in the newspaper only the other day about a new planet has been discovered that might be a bit like Earth somewhere, you know, and some star somewhere. And that feeling of us us yearning to know that we're not alone is really powerful. And yet, what would happen if we discovered we weren't? Suddenly, that'd be quite freaky. I mean, you know, how do we know that... One of the things the astronauts in my play ask is... You know, whenever humans have come into contact with other humans through history, it's tended to be it's pretty ended messy. Badly it's ended badly people. for one side or the other, and 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 so what makes us think that if we were to, if we were to find ourselves orbiting a planet and suddenly realise it was conscious, what makes us think that it's going to be conscious in a way that will be kind to us, or even in any kind of way that we recognise? Lem was brilliant at that. He's one of the best writers of Aliens because. The, the alienness of Solaris isn't uh, that kind of thing of well it's just sort of us but we've got funny ears you know or you know, sort of I mean I love Star Trek but it's not that kind of alien it's a much more like really trying to think about what consciousness what it what it would mean for us to realize that there's some otherness some way of being that isn't us given that it's hard enough for humans to understand one another yeah, trying yeah. to then understand something that is genuinely alien and completely different yeah. is an interesting challenge but also that this the, it's, it's what it prompts in the, you know because it's sort of blank as well like they don't really know they can't really communicate all they can do is speculate and they so sometimes they think that the planet is like a child you know that they should care for 
and then other times they think it's like God. It's actually, it silences them looking at them and kind of judging them. And, you know, this it's, that's what's quite funny. That it, that's what I've said to some people, the, the book isn't that dissimilar in some ways to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So even though it's associated with this very arthouse Russian film, it's actually very playful in the way that it teases us humans and what we want from... Um, the other and the universe when we're sort of trying to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Now, the fact that you're putting science fiction on stage as yeah. well, uh, I, I know from uh, some of the reading that uh, Matt Lutton, who's directing, as you've said, uh, talked about not seeing the planet on stage. So yeah. that, uh, and that trying to do uh, sci-fi on theatrically without being high-tech yeah, well. yeah. Well, th- there's a few things about that. I mean, the, the, one of the things that made us laugh when we started working on it was in the book on this spaceship, there's, they, they use pens and paper. You know, there's a library. There's like a book. They have a library of books. And they all smoke as well. Um, they smoke cigars. And because, I don't know, Stanislaw Lem didn't know what they'd be doing in the future in space. And and, and so the the future that he imagined is the future sort of based on what... And he didn't, for example, computers didn't exist pretty much in 1962. So so the the imagined future of 1962 is a, is a very different imagined future than we imagine now. And I, I like that because if we had sat down and said, oh, this is set 500 years in the future... And oh, so we'll imagine you know they have hover skateboards or something, or I don't you know computers that. Well, a it would be wrong, but also it would our story would become about that, and it would be sort of silly, really. We would know it was nonsense, and also why doing it on the stage because that sort of thing is what cinema is brilliant for. Whereas if we said no, it's the future, but as it was imagined in 1962, with books and record players and you know a sort of retro feel almost then actually you can't really question it it's almost not you can't question it, but you can enjoy it without going well that's just a cardboard box covered in you know silver foil do you know what i mean it's sort of made it a little bit more playful i think and it's the same with the planet if you know they have to effectively tell us about it and that is a good challenge for me as a writer but also means you as the audience are conjuring it in your own head yeah well and certainly definitely telling the audience about it is a real challenge for a writer because you're supposed to show not tell that's one of the fundamental rules yeah Yeah, sort of i mean it is one of the most fundamental rules but but it gets broken all the time exactly and in theater um it is a it is a uh uh it's a lovely challenge for a writer to do and it's about how little you do actually the truth because the audience's imagination of Solaris is so much more powerful than anything we could ever show anyway the moment we show it we would diminish it so it's about how little you can get away with and then and yet it hopefully becomes this looming presence for the audience through the show this thing that they too i would love that they the audience would have the same reaction as the astronauts and they would be drawn towards it and some would think it was spooky and some would think it was 
you know, the, the arrival of a new uh, religion. And, you know, <laughs> I, I sort of, I, I think no one will ever really know what Solaris is. But the story has its own resolution. I would hate to give the impression that the story doesn't have its own drive because the main protagonist, Chris Calvin, uh, uh, who's the female psychologist who's sent to investigate all of this and tries to sort of work it all out, she, she meets uh, a character from her past and that draws her into a... A whole other story, really, about her her own life and love. Well, I know that uh, Matt can evoke a looming planet without oh there being one on stage, given what he did with Melancholia yeah. at the Malthouse last year. The fact that this is a collaboration between Melbourne's Malthouse Theatre and Edinburgh's Royal Lyceum Theatre, yeah. I wanted to ask about whether there's been any clash of aesthetic, because different theatre companies have their own aesthetic approach yeah. and ideas. Um, this is clearly kind of a, a collaboration between two companies uh, from different sides of the world. Has there been a shared aesthetic or has there been a, a clash that it occasionally has been um, difficult to navigate? No, it's an interesting thought. I, I don't think so, but it, there's definitely a clash in the, the, the theatre's aesthetic because my theatre, the Royal Lyceum in Edinburgh, is a Victorian a, a proscenium arch with gold and gold leaf all around the um, you know, theatre uh, and, and it, it, red velvet seats and all, all of the things you might expect from that sort of house, whereas uh, the malt house is, you know, your very, very trendy converted malt house with absolutely terrific black box space um, and a much more sort of modernist feel to it. So in some ways it's, you know, they're very different theatres. But there's another way that we're very similar, which is that we, we at the Lyceum want to provide to the people of Edinburgh really we're the main producing theatre in, in Edinburgh and we want to provide for them really brilliant uh, cutting edge modern drama mixture classics new writing adaptations and so on and um, and actually that aesthetic on the stage is what I'm I'm quite new to the theatre. I'm sort of three or four years into artistic directing there. And what I've tried to be bringing is saying, actually, just because the theatre looks like it does doesn't mean we have to put on productions where they're sort of brushing the dust off the, the, the Jacobean costumes or, or, you know, dusty old versions of Ibsen that we've seen you know, a million times before. We can actually have an aesthetic that's every bit as... as um, uh, up to date as as you might get somewhere like the Malt House or the Young Vic in London and other places. So I was very keen that we should collaborate. I wanted us to collaborate and also very keen that we should collaborate with cities around the world and not just kind of go through London uh, as a, as our sort of route out. So so yeah, through various reasons, I ended up with this connection with Australia and particularly with M Matthew and the Malt House, and we've we've we're already talking about other potential future things as well because it's I hope it's fun and interesting for them to come to Britain as well. We're going to London as well with the show as well as to Edinburgh, and um, uh, and we brought them out with Hanging Rock and. So I hope that we, we will get Scottish artists coming out to Melbourne and just try and keep the, the route open, I guess. I look forward to seeing what grows out of that. More info and booking details at malthousetheatre.com.au. I've been talking with David Gregg, the Artistic Director of Royal Lyceum Theatre and the playwright who has adapted Solaris for the stage. David, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. Arr, arr, arr.
This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.